These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last week, we brought ourselves up to speed with what has been going on over in Asher. For the next few episodes, we'll be looking at Asher and Babylon and their empires in conjunction with each other, since the relations and wars between these two states will be one of the main drivers of events within Mesopotamia. Hopefully things won't get too confusing, I'll be doing what I can to make clear what city each king comes from. Also, I try and keep promotions to a minimum here on Oldest Stories, but if you've been enjoying the show lately, I'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to leave a review on your podcast app, or let people know about the show, either in real life or on social media. I love the time I'm able to put into this show, but it helps me to justify working on this instead of the other stuff in my life when I can know that I'm sharing these stories with the internet rather than just screaming into the void. If you're one of the folks who's already been doing that, I thank you. Anyway, today we begin our show with a Nazi. In 1307 BCE, the king placed on the throne following Assyrian king Ashurubalit's raid into Babylon has died. He has been succeeded by a guy named Nazi Marutash. The Nazi part of his name has nothing at all to do with the German Nazi party and means protection. So his whole name translates into something like the god Marutash protects. Despite the somewhat unfortunate naming coincidence, he ruled over the one of the most generally peaceful and happy periods of the Kassite dynasty. That very name Mardutash, though, shows us that while it can look like the Kassites have no culture of their own and have fully integrated into Babylonian society, the truth is that they continued to worship their own gods and maintain their own cultural distinctiveness and parallel society even hundreds of years after taking control. Marutash is a Kassite god, somewhat equivalent to the Mesopotamian Ninurta, but worshipped in distinctly Kassite ways. We can't say much about what those differences were, though, because the Kassites wrote almost nothing about themselves, even as culture in the Babylonian dialect of Akkadian, fast becoming the standard language throughout the Near East, is becoming increasingly written down and preserved. One of the biggest places that Akkadian culture is being preserved and advanced in this century is the old Sumerian holy city of Nippur, which has been turned into something of a southern capital under the Kassites. We can find very deliberate cultural projects going on here, such as collected hemorology, which pulled together the local calendars of seven major cities in southern Mesopotamia and attempted to harmonize them into a single calendar system. This is, in a way, a microcosm of the Akkadian cultural project under the Kassites. The scholars pull from the cultural record of their civilization, which, no matter how you count it, is already well over a thousand years old. Remember, depending on the estimates of the age, the historical king Gilgamesh, who lived at the very dawn of writing, is as old to them as Jesus is to us today, and quite a lot still survived through both oral and written records to give them a sense of being descendants of a great deal of antiquity. These ancient local calendar systems are then collected and standardized into a single unified system, taking this ancient heritage and preserving it in a more universal and useful form. 
but they were not simply collecting and modernizing ancient texts merely for the sake of preservation, though surely that was part of it. They took this new unified calendar study and used it to make divinatory studies, figuring out what days were lucky or unlucky for various tasks, like when a woman should give birth or when a king should collect taxes. This centralized calendar system was both an outgrowth of the conservative Mesopotamian outlook to their ancient culture, and also a step forward along the same path. Which is important, because you'll frequently see it claim that the Kassite period is completely backward-focused, and did nothing to preserve what came before without adding to it. But, in fact, they did advance the culture in their own way, just not always in ways that we would recognize as important. After all, how many people are worried about divinatory studies from 3,000 years ago? One of the most interesting fellows of this era is not a king at all, but one of the few times that we can follow the life and achievements of a non-royal person to any significant extent. This man's name was Rabashamarduk, which means Marduk is great, a sentiment quite similar to Allahu Akbar of modern Muslims, though here used as a personal name. This quite uncommon personal name and high-profile career has allowed us to quite confidently piece together documents from three major cities to tell the story of this one man. Born somewhere in Babylonia, likely in the final years of the 1300s, Rabashamarduk was almost certainly from a family of means, for his education, first as a scribe, then as a doctor, would have consumed his entire youth. We don't know if he was, in fact, born in Nippur, but by the year 1291, late in Nazi Marutash's reign, we have receipts from Nippur showing that he was receiving large quantities of date fruits to perform some sort of ritual sacrifice, though whether this was a primarily religious or medicinal ritual is not stated, and indeed, they probably didn't make such a distinction. Again, in 1286, he shows up receiving more dates, telling us that he was definitely a practitioner of religious rituals during this time. And the other evidence lets us suggest that he was performing at least some of these rituals for medical reasons. Our next evidence for his life actually comes from a hundred years later when the later wars between Babylon and Asher sees the library of Nippur raided and many of its contents brought to Asher. It's in this Assyrian library of Tukulti Ninurta that we find a list of 18 medical prescriptions written by Rabbi Shamarduk, though it isn't clear how many of these were older prescriptions compiled by the good doctor and how many were his own innovations. Unfortunately, while much of the list is actually in decent condition, many of the medicinal herbs carry unknown names, so what we have is frustratingly difficult to interpret. For example, if you have a headache, Rabbi Shamarduk tells us to crush together seeds of eru, seeds of tigilu, seeds of cynoglossum, seeds of edu plant, seeds of the garden, and seeds of kishanu peas. You sieve it, 
You mix it together in equal parts. You mix it with vinegar into a paste, powdered roasted barley, and emmer flour you sprinkle onto that paste. You then rub it onto your skin. You shave the person's head, bind it on, and they'll recover. Essentially, this is a topical formulation bound by a bandage, which may well have brought headache relief depending on what was in those plants of his, or it could have just been fancy paste that made the patient feel better just because they were receiving attention from someone who believed they could heal the injury. Still, another headache cure consists of another of aromatics like juniper and cedar, which can in fact relieve sinus pressure in certain cases, so we have reason to trust that he may well have known what he was talking about. There are no fewer than 18 remedies for headaches in these prescriptions, each of which may have been effective against different sorts of pain, and all were applied topically and kept in place with cloth bandages bound directly to a shaved head. Different types of headaches are specifically mentioned, from pulsing pain to seizing pains to headaches connected with numbness or headaches connected with partial paralysis or headaches connected with general body pain or even headaches connected with ghost hauntings. One recipe for the last looks quite a bit like the other ones, though involves slightly more esoteric ingredients such as grease from the hinges of a particular city gate. But despite finding his writings in Asher, we don't believe he ever spent his life there. Instead, at the end of Hittite King Muatali's reign, he sent a letter to Babylon asking for a Babylonian physician to be sent to the Hittite court, since there were no local doctors who were of the same level of quality as the Babylonians were. It seems that two men were sent, an unnamed exorcist and a doctor named Rabba Shamarduk. The exorcist appears to have died at some point, which sparked a minor diplomatic incident, but Rabisha Marduk would continue to live in Hattusha for the rest of his life, apparently receiving a generous income, a large house, and a local wife, enough for the Hittite king to plausibly claim that Rabisha Marduk was not being held in Hattusha against his will, but simply chose to continue to work and live in the Hittite Empire, even when later Kassite kings requested his return. All in all, Nazi Maratash ruled over some of the most well-documented and seemingly prosperous of Kassite periods, with hundreds of economic texts attesting to the economic health of the nation as a whole, and a good number of construction projects and land management documents speaking to a continuous effort to rebuild the splendor of still-diminished Mesopotamia. His war-making activities are a bit less clear. Whether or not he attacked Assyria early in his career, while Arik den Ili was still king in Asher, is unknown. Some think, as was mentioned, he may have waged a proxy war by hiring various barbarian groups to go after the Assyrians, while others think he may have even sent a few small Babylonian skirmishes northwards, all of which were Babylonian victories, but none of them were significant ones. Additionally, he seems to have struck eastward, capturing 12 Hurrian districts on what would have been the Babylonian northeast frontier, possibly an effort to forestall Assyrian eastward expansion or to cut them off from trade. 
Additionally, he seems to have at some point have attacked Elam, though this campaign is only known through a listing of Elamite prisoners of war, and we're forced to infer that some war must have happened to cause them to be imprisoned, for we have no other clear references to it. This is, I should mention, the beginning of an Elamite rise in power, which is going to happen almost completely off-screen in this podcast, because it's very obscure, but they're clearly getting a bit more influential if they're taking part in Mesopotamian wars again. But the most notable military campaigns of Nazi Marotash require that we travel back up the Tigris River. For in perhaps 1295 BCE, Arik Denili dies and leaves the throne to his son Adad-Nirari I. And finally, we'll see a revitalization of some of the Assyrian military energy that his great-grandfather Ashur-Ubalit once possessed. While the one document that goes into much detail, Adad-Nirari's own historical epic, is pretty badly damaged, it's clear that it was once a very lengthy document, and these campaigns against Babylon were, from an Assyrian point of view, highly significant. Adad-Nirari seems to have been of the opinion that Assyria would not be able to properly develop into a major power if they were unable to control the region where the Euphrates and Tigris came very close together, the Middle Mesopotamian region. If they held that, they would be able to send boats all over the river networks of the Near East and conduct both trade and military operations without the much slower and more expensive land routes they were currently relying upon. This would require putting the border between Assyria and Babylon only a handful of miles north of the city of Babylon itself. And needless to say, the Babylonians were less than enthusiastic about such an arrangement. What we can make out from the Adad-Nirari epic tells us that the subsequent campaign was an extremely hard-fought one, and the Assyrians seem to have taken more than a few blows to the chin, requiring Adad-Nirari to personally call upon the aid of the sun god Shamash. But once they had the gods on their side, the Assyrians won a decisive battle at a place called Kar-Ishtar, falling upon the Kassites like a devastating flood, defeating the army of Nazi Marutash and forcing them to seek peace. While the resulting treaty did not push the border all the way as far as Adad-Nirari would have liked, it did move it southward a good 46 miles, and gave Assyria control of a portion of the Middle Euphrates River, allowing Adad-Nirari at least some ability to move goods and men along the western river. And this control of the Euphrates will prove to be crucial, since though the battles with Babylon are the ones that he had prepared the most for, seems to have been the most proud of, there would be a perhaps even more significant development later in his reign. We've already covered some of this ground in this series on the Hittites, but at some point the vassal king of Mitanni, a man named Shatuwara, who, despite the similar name, is different from Shitarna and Shatizawa, rebelled against the Hittites. It isn't completely clear whether the Hittite king Muatali simply didn't consider this a priority, given everything else he was dealing with, or if the Assyrian attack came the exact same instant as the Mitanni rebellion. 
Almost certainly, there had been a state of hostility between the East Syrians and the Mitanni even while the Mitanni were still Hittite vassals, which took on the form of attacks on merchants, cattle raids, and even the plundering of less important cities. But until Shatuara's rebellion, fear of the Hittites kept the Assyrians in check. Adad-Nirari had divinations taken which seemed to have insisted that the Assyrian army move quickly, so quickly that Asher was not able to get a letter to the Hittites giving them a heads up about what was about to happen, which would subsequently irritate the Anatolian power in later diplomacy. As is frustratingly typical, we know very little about the course of this war. As far as we can tell, the Assyrians seem to have just marched straight to the capital and captured it, then brought King Shatuara to Asher, where he was forced to kneel before Adad-Nirari and call the Assyrian king his father. When Adad-Nirari shows that he's upset with Shatuara, the Mitanni king meekly submits to the Assyrian king as a judge, asking what he's done wrong. This show of submission likely saved his life, for Adad-Nirari allowed Shatuara to return to Mitanni and rule over it, though this time their status was reduced below standard vassal to something like scorned subject. Shatuara would prove to be a compliant vassal for as long as he lived, and the remnants of Mitanni, now reduced to nothing more than the core land around Hanigalbat and another province named Shubria, were quiet for a time. No one knows how long Shatuara lived, however, and while we're pretty sure that he died some time while Adad-Nirari was still king, Adad-Nirari's reign would span an incredible 31 years. Probably, though, it was shortly before the famous Battle of Kadesh that Shatuara died and was replaced by his son. While Mitanni was quiet, Adad-Nirari continued to expand the borders of Assyria, going after former Mitanni vassals and eastern barbarian tribes. It's debatable whether any significant amount of territory was actually gained in these campaigns, or if it was just the defeat of some armies followed by plunder. Either way, Asher was quite definitely on the upswing now, and the elevation of a man named Wasashata to the throne of Mitanni would only confirm it. In an unknown year, seriously, estimates are separated by like 50 years here, but probably a few years before the Battle of Kadesh in 1274, Wasashata took over the rump of the Mitanni state and declared that the very best thing he could do was to thumb his nose at his Assyrian overlord and insult Adad-Nirari with a declaration of independence. Wasashada then ran to the Hittites, begging for support, something he probably should have tried to do before declaring independence, because Muatali was having none of it. Even if he had troops to spare against the Assyrian distraction, there was certainly no love lost between the Mitanni and Hittite royal houses at this point. The campaign was extensive, led by Adad-Nirari and the full might of the Assyrian army. It seems to have gone first to the capital and crushed it, burning the city down after pillaging it thoroughly. Wasashada and some of his royal retainers, however, seem to have escaped into the wilderness. 
To prevent the royal house from finding any sanctuary, Adad Nirari crushed the dozen largest remaining cities in the Mitanni homeland of Hanigalbat, the modern Kabur Triangle region, plundering them, burning them, and exterminating them in vengeance against the beaten nation's treachery. Finally, he reached the city of Irite, where Wasashata had managed to hide and burned the city, slaughtered everyone he could find, and salted the earth. There was no playing around when the issue was one of rebellion against the Assyrians. The royal house of Mitanni was probably exterminated, though there is another fellow later who claims to be descended from some part of the Mitanni royal line. The lands of Hanigalbat were reduced further, to a mere province of Assyria governed by a relative of the king. The Assyrian army had destroyed so many cities in the Kabur region that Adad-Nirari was forced to partially build one of the destroyed towns, Taidu, while the old capital of Washukani was left completely abandoned, and has yet to be discovered by archaeologists to this day. In fact, the majority of the cities listed as destroyed by Adad-Nirari appear to have been completely lost to history at this point. This is likely the occasion on which the Assyrian king sent a letter to Muatali, just a bit before the Battle of Kadesh, insisting that Adad-Nirari was now an equal to the other great kings. Now that Assyria was, in its own estimation, the equal of the Hittites, and now that they shared a border, Adad-Nirari appears to have suggested that they either meet on Mount Amana, which was something of a minor holy mountain, in order to set the border between them, or that Mount Amana was supposed to be the border. Muatali replied, as we've already seen, by saying that the Assyrian king was still far too unimportant to be counted among his equals, and he cared not at all about whatever proposals Adad-Nirari was putting forth. It's likely this reply that spurred the Assyrians to launch an attack against the Hittites at Carchemish, though the results of this battle appear to have been inconclusive, and the Assyrians themselves do not seem to have recorded them at all, perhaps suggesting an embarrassing defeat. After this, however, the last half of Adad-Nirari's reign appears to have been relatively peaceful. Diplomacy continued with the Hittite court, continuing after the Battle of Kadesh and into the reign of the later Hittite king, Hattusili III. In a rather interesting letter sent by the Hittite king, relations seemed to have thawed enough that the two monarchs could peacefully discuss matters of border security and trade. The Hittite king seems particularly worried that the people from a small border town called Turiya are sending plundering raids into the lands around Karchemish, probably a few Hurrian leftovers who still see everyone on the opposite side of the Euphrates as enemies. Hattushili asks that Adad-Nirari get these wayward subjects under control. Also of note in this letter is that Adad-Nirari apparently asked for a certain amount of iron weapons, but Hattushili insists that there is some issue at the armory of Kizawatna, and all these shipments of iron will be delayed. In the meantime, he sends a single iron dagger. In terms of the value of iron, it seems that Adad-Nirari sent a shipment of full suits of bronze armor and would be receiving iron blades in return. 
The letter does not make clear the exchange rate, but perhaps it's implied that one full suit of bronze armor, a fairly substantial store of wealth, was equivalent to a single iron dagger. Reminding us that even if they are beginning to experiment with iron, we're still solidly in the Bronze Age at this point, though the Iron Age is just around the corner. There was also a measure of peace with Babylon at the end of Adad-Nirari's reign. At about Adad-Nirari's halfway mark, Nazi Marutash passed away and was replaced by his son Kadashman Turgu. Kadashman Turgu's peace deal may have been what freed Adad Nirari to hunt down the last of the Mitanni so vigorously, but whatever the details, the peace seems to have lasted until the end of both their reigns. Adad Nirari domestically seems to have been quite a lot like previous Assyrian kings, focused on battle and construction, but thanks to the successes he enjoyed and the victories he wrote so extensively about, we can see in his reign some distinctive features of the Middle Assyrian period. Long ago, when we first looked at the Assyrians, they were notable for being a peaceful, mercantile people with an incredibly strong representative government and a comparatively weak king. While the power of the representative council of Asher has waned over the centuries, it isn't clear when it was completely abolished. What is clear, though, is that by the time of Adad-Nirari, whatever pretense of representative government as may once have existed in Asher is now gone. They are, like pretty much every other state in the ancient Near East, a monarchy focused on military might. There are still Assyrian merchants, but it's much more like the merchants of any other nation and lack the great power, prestige, and innovative ambition of their forefathers. By Adad-Nirari, the listing of the king's titles now takes 32 lines to represent in full while the last thing which remains of the former representative government is that each year a man is selected as Limu, which was once an elected position with a great deal of power, and is now mostly an honorary title used for naming the year in the Assyrian calendar system. This king did not rule alone, however, and in this period we see the formation of a bureaucracy that mixes flexibility with professionalism. The king was surrounded by essentially a cabinet of top-level officials, but for the most part this was not a fixed body, and when the king had particular priorities, he could create or remove an office to handle some aspect of governance. For example, Adad-Nirari creates the office of King of Hanigalbat after the final destruction of Mitanni, but this title is given to his head vizier rather than made into its own division. Additionally, the king reserved the right to intervene either directly or through edicts with any part of the bureaucracy, all the way down to adjusting the tax status of individual holdings or reversing the judgments of his judges. Essentially, if the king wanted to sit back and party all day, there was enough of a government apparatus to manage things in his absence. But if he wanted to get stuck in the nitty-gritty of any particular aspect of governance, that was his prerogative as well. This made for a reasonably flexible system that could survive royal neglect and could also shift with the times when a king put his mind to reform. 
Additionally, the Assyrian government, as it spread out over wider and wider territory, tended to be far more centralized than what we've seen among the Hittites and Mitanni. There were vassals of the Assyrian king, but for the most part, territory was incorporated into Pahutu districts. Each district was centered around a major city and all the countryside associated with that city. The district governors were principally in charge of keeping track of the entire population and economy of their city and countryside, keeping records of populations, occupations, herds, and fields, and had the power not just to tax and conscript from among this, but seemingly also to reallocate people into different jobs as needed by the state. The exact level of economic intervention possible for a district governor is unclear, but the evidence we have suggests that it could have been quite substantial when needed. And I would be remiss if I failed to mention the religious shifts occurring at this time as well. The city of Asher was named for its patron god, also called Asher, and the city and god are so intertwined that it's impossible to tell which came first. Indeed, in the very old times, it's hard to tell what the god Asher is supposed to be, aside from a protective deity from the city, which is probably what he was invented for. However, as the Middle Assyrian kingdom rises, Asher the god starts taking on substantially more theological importance. We saw our first king was named Asher Ubalat, which means something like, the god Asher gives me life. And more and more, Asher is named as a primary god, not just chief of the local pantheon. In this, he begins to absorb aspects and stories from the Mesopotamian pantheon, King Enlil, and from the Babylonian primary god Ninurta. Indeed, there are Assyrian versions of the Enuma Elish where the entire story is more or less exactly the same, but with every reference to Marduk replaced by the word Asher. Asher's wife, Mulishu, becomes identified with the Mesopotamian queen goddess Ninlil, and his son becomes the popular action hero god Ninurta, though in later times even some of Ninurta's stories start to get absorbed by Asher. All this is a very, very slow process, running well into the Neo-Assyrian period, and it does not appear to have been the result of anyone saying, hey, let's just take a bunch of foreign stories and put them on our god. Rather, it appears that the people of Asher, in their patriotic and religious fervor, simply had a tendency to put their local god first in all things, and he gradually grew into something greater than the average polytheistic god. In fact, we do see something similar over in Babylon, though since there are more interruptions to Babylonian independence and supremacy, the pattern of Marduk being increasingly exalted is broken up from time to time and never quite reaches the same level that we see in the late Assyrian period. My discussion of these trends is getting us a bit far ahead of things. Over in Babylon, we have a new king, Kadashman Turgu, whose main contribution to history would be as a peacemaker, settling the diplomatic situation following the Assyrian Wars and the Battle of Kadesh. As mentioned, Kadashman Turgu made peace with his northern neighbor. 
Also, after the death of Muatali shortly after the Battle of Kadesh, he was involved in the Hittite succession crisis, recognizing Hattusili III as the legitimate king, and ultimately concluding a treaty of friendship with the Hittites, putting him at peace with both of his major neighbors and quieting the region substantially. Under Kadashman Turgu, the Babylonian Empire was world-renowned for its human capital. We saw how its doctors, such as Rabba Shamarduk, were in high demand all the way in Hattusha, but also its religious experts and sculptors are loaned out to other nations. For the 18 years of Kadashman Turgu's reign, there was a general peace in Mesopotamia, and with peace came new opportunities for wealth and learning. Some of that wealth went to the creation of a new ziggurat in the city of Marad, a middle Mesopotamian city which has only fairly recently started excavations, so hopefully there will be more discoveries made from the Kassite period in coming years. Nippur was also heavily patronized in this period, and likely there were other building projects around the empire, though the lack of surviving documents from the Kassite age in general makes it hard to say anything with certainty. Both Kadashman Turgu and Adad Nirari passed away in 1264. The time of peace that these two kings shared would begin to fade away after this. No matter how prosperous and educated Kassite Babylonia had become, it's still suffering from underpopulation and the return of soil salinization. The Assyrians, meanwhile, are starting to experiment with new and more comprehensive forms of warfare that are going to help shape the world to come. So join us next time for Child Kings and War Crimes as Mesopotamia marches ever closer to the Bronze Age collapse. Thank you for listening. <laughs>